Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos. And we're picking up this evening on page 225 of the text, if you're following along. And we are starting with letter H from St. John Cassian, one of the great teachers of the spiritual tradition. And um, if you remember, we've been uh, looking at how they would evaluate individuals who were seeking to embrace the monastic life, uh, the kind of scrutiny that they would engage in. And we're, that's what we're picking up with this evening. In particular, the, the desire that an individual has, a spirit of, of obedience, uh, that they have the way that they work, the humility with which they take up task. And, uh, and then in the next hypothesis, we'll be looking at the need for discernment on the part of those who are doing the evaluation, that they have a kind of clarity about what it is that they are looking for as well, that they don't discount someone uh, from the life uh, uh, by looking for the wrong things and uh, or being too attentive to certain things that they would think would be red flags. And so again, on 225 at the bottom of the page, in all of the Cenobitic monasteries in Egypt and throughout the East, these canonical prescriptions are observed. One who comes to the Cenobium wishing to become a monk will not be received inside the monastery until he has shown that he has a real desire for God and a measure of humility and long-suffering by exercising the greatest possible patience. When he has been tested in, in these ways, the aspiring monk is accepted among the brothers and is instructed not to hold on to any of his property. In this way, every aspirant is stripped of his former possessions so that he's not permitted hereafter to wear even the clothing which he was wearing when he came to the monastery. When all the brothers are assembled in the church and he has been led into their midst, he removes his worldly garments and is clothed by the abbot instead with monastic vesture, so that he might know through this act that he has been stripped of all worldly things, of arrogance and of vanity, and has put on the poverty of Christ, that without any shame he has thereby placed himself among the monastics, putting himself on the same level as the body of the brotherhood. So Cassian has always been one of the great teachers and uh, writes with a great clarity and uh, presents to us this Egyptian monastic ideal uh, with, for the Western mind and articulates it with a kind of clarity that is unmatched, I think, by any of the other fathers. Uh, there's a beauty certainly in, in Isaac and in, and, uh, in uh, John Climacus, but I think Cassian in particular uh, offers a clarity that is not found in any of the others. In some ways, I think he's almost the best father to start with in, in terms of reading uh, this literature. I found he's one of the first that I started reading uh, as a young man. And there was just such a clarity there uh, that and an avoidance of sort of the extreme stories that we hear and have read on occasion. I think uh, Cassian wants to give us sort of the, the clearest vision of not only the monastic life, but the life of holiness itself. Uh, what stands out for me in this first paragraph 
uh, is uh, the desire for God, humility uh, in the individual, and this long-suffering, a kind of patience, a willingness to undergo the particular tests and trials uh, that uh, a novice would undergo entering into the monastic life. And as we'll see here in the next paragraph, that one would do that uh, without a kind of grumbling, that there would be a spirit of, of willingness to embrace uh, the fullness of, of the life of the monastery itself. And uh, we're shown that uh, the, the rite itself in entering the monastery uh, indicates for the individual, uh, setting aside of past ways. And so stripping oneself of worldly garments and embracing the garments uh, of the monks and uh, being stripped of all worldly things. And he mentions here, arrogance and vanity and putting on the poverty of Christ. So it's not simply material goods when he's talking about setting aside all worldly things, but spiritual as well. Any kind of arrogance or vanity about oneself or one's abilities and talents. Uh, so it's not just worldly goods, but worldly attitudes that an individual is called to set aside. A couple of comments came up here. Uh, one can take this passage and read it into the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. Was it a kind of monastic community? And Ananias and Sapphira tries to enter the community, but remain in the world, holding on to some of his own possessions. Yes, you know, I think what we find within the monastics is this rootedness within the scripture. And, uh, and many people, and I was reading today, many of the modern elders say that we, we, we wouldn't really want to read the scriptures outside of reading the fathers as well that they become this lens for us, uh, an interpretive key, almost a cipher for us for reading the, the scriptures and allow us to be able to look at it with a kind of clarity that we might not other, otherwise have an understanding too. Uh, the clarity and understanding that comes from seeking to live it and live it fully. And, uh, and so that's an interesting thing, you know, I think, because we often will pick up the scriptures and in so many ways they aren't easy to grasp either uh, in terms of uh, the vision of the world and the vision of the human person and so to have the experiential knowledge of the fathers as they struggled to live it uh, to be that interpretive key is ever so helpful and even you know as a, as a priest and one who has to preach uh, on the Gospels, I found that over the course of the years, that they have been uh, the richest resource for me. It hasn't been so much the commentaries uh, that I've come across as it is the uh, living sort of commentary of, of the lives and the writings of the fathers themselves. Okay. Any other comments on this first paragraph? Okay. The Oconomos, that is the steward of the monastery, takes the clothes which the candidate has removed and keeps them for some time in a separate place until he demonstrates his progress, conduct, and patience amidst various temptations. 
If the brothers find him capable of persevering in these circumstances and persisting in the same serious and ardent fervor with which he began, then they enroll him officially in the brotherhood. But if they learn that he suffers from the flaw of grumbling or has sinned by showing disobedience in any way whatever, they remove him from the monastic garb that he has put on and clothe him once more in his worldly garments, expelling him from the synobium. This strictness is not meant to drive off from the monastery those who just occasionally think of leaving, but only a person who persistently fails in every instance to maintain his monastic profession. He's placed again in worldly clothing and is thus released from the monastery. So this slow measured process to uh, test the desire of the individual. And what they are looking for is not perfection. I think there's a realization that anyone coming in to a community is going to grumble on occasion or fall into disobedience or even want to leave. And Cassian's quick to say here that this is not the, the ones that he is talking about. It's really those who do this on a consistent basis and in the process reveal to the community as a whole that the desire for the monastery isn't substantive, that it doesn't have deep roots. And uh, this is an important thing to understand. You know, no community uh, wants to take somebody who isn't really meant to, to be there. And I think in our day, uh, the little discussion came, uh, came up on Facebook today. Uh, I had posted this uh, quote from the Evergetinians that hopefully we'll get to here this evening about not treating the elderly in a poor way, the elderly monk. And uh, it led to a discussion. Someone said that uh, he's often been turned away from monasteries because of his age. And uh, I, what I see happening in our own day is uh, problematic on both ends, not a strenuous enough testing of vocations uh, and seeing if they do have the virtues that are put forward here, but also a kind of myopic view of individuals as well, that uh, they have to fit a certain image. And so often age uh, or, uh, uh, is, Oh, let's just stop there, even just with age itself. Once you pass 40, uh, you're less and less likely to be received into a community. And uh, I think this is problematic for a number of reasons. I understand why individuals would, why communities would want to take younger individuals, that they would be formable, they would think, or maybe teachable, but that's not always the case. And uh, sometimes people, for one reason or another, uh, have been delayed uh, in uh, discerning their vocation. And I've seen a lot of people be turned away from communities that I felt were eminently uh, suitable uh, for the religious life. And so communities have lost, I think, very holy individuals in doing so, uh, that they would have been obedient and they would have embraced the life fully. And so I've always found what the fathers say about this, and I even think in a lot of the Eastern monasteries, they aren't quick to turn away people who come later in life. 
that really what they are looking for are these fundamental virtues within them. And uh, simply because someone is young doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be formable or, or good fit for the common life. Any comments so far on these first couple of paragraphs? How old were the apostles when Christ called them? Uh, I don't know. I get a sense that Peter might have been a little bit older, and certainly he, you know, had a mother-in-law, and uh, you don't hear anything of, of of his wife within it. So it's hard to say how old they were, but it seems like that they were pretty advanced, even in their being fishermen and skilled fishermen in that regard, and. Uh, but yes, you know, I think through the, the years, we, we don't find that emphasized as much as we do in our own day. It's kind of a difficult thing. And then, you know, the expectation that everyone would go to college too, uh, that necessarily isn't going to be a good formative experience preparing somebody for the religious life. And what it usually does is simply throw them into a load of debt that uh, puts off the vocation indefinitely because the religious community can absorb that. So we have a lot of things that sort of work against vocations these days. Okay, when a candidate has been accepted, having been tested by this strictness that we have mentioned above and has been found blameless, he is not allowed to mingle immediately with the company of the brothers, but is handed over to the monk who has the obedience of looking after guests. He is directed to provide guests with every care and service. When he has served the guest irreproachably for a whole year, having been trained thereby in humility and long suffering, he is numbered with the company of the brothers. The task of the senior monk is to instruct the novice how to start on the road that leads to the attainment of perfect virtue. First, he teaches him to overcome his own desires by ordering him to do the opposite of what he wants. For the fathers say there is no other way for one to curb his desires or to conquer anger or grief or truly to acquire humility or simply to achieve perfection in the monastery together with the brotherhood then first to deaden his own volitions through obedience. So serving the guest who had come to the monastery. So attending to the needs of those who were pilgrims or were simply coming to seek the, the counsel of monks that one would have to take upon himself the uh, most basic and domestic of duties and carry this out in a kind of joyful spirit that uh, no matter what one's background might be or what one's education might be, that all were required to take upon these tasks. And it very quickly does uh, put a person to, to the test. You know, when you're taking out the garbage or cleaning dishes or cooking meals, uh, then the focus, your focus has to change uh, radically, that you're seeking your identity, not in all the things that you could accomplish, but rather in this desire to be part of something that is greater than oneself and is ordered toward seeking Christ. And imitating Christ 
fundamentally in the spirit of obedience, of seeking not to do one's own will, but rather to do the will of one's superior, and ultimately that is to form oneself uh, in such a way that we are seeking always to do the will of, of God, ultimately. And uh, we've talked many times before about the daily task being labeled as one's obedience, that one would take that up without grumbling and, uh, and do it with a kind of joyful spirit. And again, yeah, I think that's true for all of us living within the world, that whatever happens to uh, come to us, that we would take it up and without a grumbling spirit. Living in an older rectory now, I've had to uh, <laughs> deal with some unruly toilets and all kinds of stuff and plug drains and uh, it becomes part of the part of the light day-to-day life, you know, as, as much as anything else. And you, you sort of have to take it up in the right spirit. Otherwise, it leads you into a kind of foul mood. If you begin to grumble, it's going to draw you into a kind of, of sadness and irritability. And then certainly that's going to translate into the way that you relate to others. Okay. Anything on this particular paragraph? Okay. After advancing the novice with such rules and teachings, the fathers follow up by instructing him not to conceal his private thoughts but to confess them to his spiritual father as soon as they come to him, and in no way to trust his heart to judge them, but to consider them good or bad in accordance with what the spiritual father reveals to him through his own discernment. So strict is the obedience preserved by the monks that nobody, aside from the abbot, dares to step outside the cell where he dwells. They are eager to fulfill the orders they receive from him, as if they received them from God. So we come back to uh, the sharing of one's thoughts that we've discussed many times before. And it becomes very important for those who are entering into the community to do this freely with those who are placed in charge of them. Uh, if you're living in a monastery and there is silence, uh, then you have to be communicating to the one who's responsible for you what's going on on an interior level, because this is where the battle is fought. And so if uh, a monk is struggling with irritability, or if he has certain thoughts about various monks within the community, uh, or anger directed towards someone, his ability to freely tell his spiritual father that becomes important in his formation, that to hold those things back prevents the spiritual father from being able to apply the, the balm that is needed or the guidance that is needed to help him make his way through the common life and to keep the right spirit in, in taking up the, these duties. Inevitably, you're not going to like everyone that you're living with in a community. You know, there are going to be personalities and temperaments that don't gel naturally. And so our capacity to deal with feelings 
that we have arise towards others and to deal with it in such a way that we aren't simply repressing it, but that we are bringing it out into the fullness of the light, revealing it to the spiritual father in the same way that we would want to reveal it to God, uh, that we don't keep it hidden, nor do we nurse it or nurture it, but we bring it out into the light in order to deal with it as fully as we can. And you know, for all of us, I think this often takes place within the confessional. And this is where I think priests in our day, uh, you know, often it's hard because I think they feel that they have limited time, but this is where I think more frequent confession is important to allow people that opportunity to talk about not only the specific sins that they've committed, but the, the things that they are struggling with, uh, not just periodically, but on a day-to-day -day basis and not just the grave things, but the, the kinds of thoughts and attitudes that they might struggle with in their relations with others and the way they go about their work, uh, to be able to look at those things with a kind of clarity. Any thoughts? Okay. While they are in their cells and attending with unsleeping attentiveness to their handiwork, study and prayer, as soon as they hear someone knocking at the door of each cell, summoning them either to common prayer or to some task, they lay everything aside at once and set out to fulfill the command with all zeal making it a point to put into practice the virtue of obedience, to which they give priority over not only their handiwork, reading, and quietness in their cells, in their cells but also all the other virtues. For all these occupy second place. Aside from what we have already said, it is superfluous for us to say that none of these monks possesses anything other than a short-sleeved garment or a short outer garment, sandals, a sheepskin cloak, and a rush mat, thinking it shameful for one of the monks to say, my book, my pencil, my writing tablet, and call anything else mine. So, a couple of different things here. Obedience at this point, especially uh, standing above and beyond all the other virtues that in a person's formation, uh, there isn't the foundation to be able to trust one's own judgment or that one possesses the other virtues or can develop them outside of the humility that often goes along with the, the formation of obedience. First, they have to have this capacity to hear and receive in a humble spirit the guidance of others who have an experiential knowledge of this life. And so to enter into the monastic life without this discipline is not going to lead them anywhere except out the door again when they aren't able to live the life. And, you know, I think when we look at our spiritual life, uh, it's harder for us to imagine what is it that we do then uh, in terms of forming this virtue for ourselves? How is it that we can foster this spirit of obedience in our particular vocation? And uh, 
you know, I think if we look at married life and family life, uh, certainly there are many opportunities to uh, be obedient to that identity and the demands of day-to-day -day life and to order one's life around the, the fundamental vocation as well. And uh, that this is going to bear, certainly bear fruit uh, in one way or another. If we aren't attentive to what is most fundamental to the path that we've taken, then no matter what else we're doing or accomplishing in our life uh, has very little value. And, uh, and certainly we're not going to grow in the other virtues if in our fundamental vocations, we're not seeking to be obedient to that particular call. And so to be and embrace the identity as husband and father and wife and mother, for example, uh, this again should be the lens through which one would be looking at one's life and the pursuit of virtue. Any comments or questions? Uh, the second thing is, you know, for, for monks in particular, uh, the embrace of poverty and this letting go of one's own will, uh, the letting go of possessions uh, was key for them. This not seeing something as my pencil or my writing tablet, that things belong to the community as a whole. And uh, this would liberate uh, a monk, but also create a kind of peace within the community as well, that uh, one wouldn't become possessive of uh, a particular thing as their own. And if you, you see it equally as belonging to the others as the community, others in the community, and you're less likely to hold on to it and be disturbed if someone else is using it or has need of it. And so you can freely let it go when someone asks for it. Each of them, I'm sorry, Anthony has a comment here. They say you die as you have lived. I suppose then that Jesus into thy hands I commend my spirit indicates he perf perfected this emptiness of self as he lived. That's right. And I think this is what they are imitating. Uh, certainly in and they become the greatest confessors of the faith in this regard by the perfection of their obedience. That if Christ tells us my food is to do the will of the Father, and that he embraces this all the way to the cross, to death itself, then the monk who is seeking uh, in his obedience to superiors to imitate Christ becomes perfect when he's able to let go of his clinging to his own will, as well as clinging to anything within the world. So all of this, you know, the asceticism isn't a hatred for the self or hatred for worldly things. It acknowledges, though, how powerful a pull our will and willfulness has upon us, as well as our attraction to the material things of the world. And so entering into the monastic life, you know, they had a real clarity about what they were pursuing, 
which was to let, let these things go completely so that they could focus on the interior life and the perfecting of the virtues. Each of them produces such provisions for the monastery from the sweat of his own daily work as are sufficient not only for its needs, but also to assist in serving guests and paupers. When working, the monks are not boastful or arrogant, nor does any of them seek any more rest from his toil and sweat than he needs, nor does he acquire material possessions of any kind, for he remains as a sojourner and a stranger to the whole world, considering himself a slave and servant of his brothers, despite his mastery of any earthly thing whatever. If anyone breaks a vessel or loses anything at all, he confesses to the abbot the error due to his negligence, and through sincere repentance, he receives forgiveness. So this way of working is an interesting thing. And if you, you know, whether you live in the family or you're at work with your fellow laborers or live in a religious community, there at times is this fluctuation where you have a lot more, it seems like you have a lot more work and a lot more is being demanded of you than other members of the community, for example. And like all of a sudden you have tons of fu funerals or weddings or appointments and, uh, and others might not seem to be as heavily burdened by the, the labors for, for the community or day-to-day -day life. And uh, it becomes very easy at that time to compare ourselves to others or become resent, resentful of it. And so in the monastery in particular, you know, individuals are going to be asked to do different things by their superiors or by the abbot as he is inclined. And sometimes in terms of what he sees as the temperament or the need of a particular individual or the community. And so their responsibility is to respond to that as fully as possible. And again, without that grumbling spirit. And I think in our day-to-day -day life, we could have those periods of time where we feel that one thing is being asked of us after another, or, uh, or an unexpected thing comes up after putting in a long day or a long week. And to be able to take hold of what is asked of us by somebody and have a kind of generosity of spirit as well as the spirit of obedience uh, is a ref reflection of the, the love of Christ and what he calls us to do, to go the extra mile. To, to give what is asked of us and not to do, to do so begrudgingly. Nobody has any thoughts on that? <laughs> wow. Because I've often found it, that to be the most challenging of things, especially when you're exhausted in mind and body and you're asked to, to do something that you weren't expecting. When you were already contemplating in your mind, well, tonight I'm going to spend this time reading or a little extra time in prayer, or I'm going to go to bed early or something along those lines. And then all of a sudden, no, you aren't. 
you because you're responding to the the needs or the request of someone else and we can have those little moments where we get filled with kind of resentment of having to give that up all right anyone who is summoned to work or to the synaxis and comes to too slowly or applies with anger or impudence or carries out his obedience with grumbling and does not display the diligence that is demanded or prefers reading to work and obedience, performs the task assigned to him too slowly and after the end of a service does not immediately run to his work or speaks to someone without a serious need or grasp another's hand ostentatiously or finally falls into a similar sin he has a punishment imposed on him. And when the brethren assemble in the synaxis, then the one who is being punished falls to the ground and asks forgiveness for his mistake. So, you know, one of the things that the, these communities would do and what one would be agreeing to in entering into the monastery is this free acknowledgement of one's failure to live according to the rule that one has embraced and to receive perhaps a penance for not having done it. And so communities, uh, perhaps you've heard of chapter of faults where individuals will accuse themselves of ways that they have fallen short of the rule or that they haven't carried out something with love or they haven't been engaging the members of the community in love or they have been had a grumbling spirit or have dragged their feet in doing things for the sake of the community. You know, I think when it, we all have had that experience where we'll have a kind of like psychological resistance to something and we become passive aggressive and we begin to move ever so slowly in fulfilling a task uh, that we could do very quickly if, if we were attentive and took it up with zeal. I've mentioned here before uh, if somebody's uh, waiting for a parking space, if the person knows that they're waiting for them, that it takes the person longer to get in their car, turn their car on and back out. But there's a kind of passive aggressiveness within us that we aren't often even conscious of, that if we know that somebody's waiting, you know, we, if, if we're, there's any kind of animosity that exists within us or is described here, any lack of zeal for work, we, we can drag our feet in doing it. And so when this was noticed in communities, a kind of public penance was done, you know, often coming into the refectory or coming in, as they said, to the synaxis where they're gathering for prayer, a person would kneel down and maybe stretch out their arms and humbly acknowledge what they had, they had done. And again, this wasn't to humiliate, uh, but, but it was meant to humble, you know, to, to draw into light the truth of what was going on interiorly in order that an individual might be healed from it. Eric, grasp another's hand ostentatiously. What does that mean? Well, you know, sort of in a flamboyant way to take hold of somebody as if there's something you know, important or essential that one would talk about, or that the you know that there's that they should be engaged 
by them. Uh, it's, so it's drawing attention to oneself. Whereas in the monastery, of course, what would be prized is this kind of stillness and going back to one's duties. And so when one's prayer is finished in common with the rest of the community, the idea is that people would break away and be, go back to their work. But uh, if you know somebody is wants to delay in doing that, then he's going to make himself visible to others uh, as if he has some particular need that should be addressed. And uh, when it doesn't really need to be addressed at that moment, if at all. And again, you know, these are things that we might not really be attentive to. And maybe we've never even thought about ourselves. And these particular ways that we draw attention to ourselves uh, that distract us from doing what God has given us to do at the moment whether it's prayer or our, our work, uh, we all know that, you know, we, we can waste time. And, you know, the people standing around the proverbial water cooler, you know, talking about things or at work, you know, bringing up uh, even questions about work that really aren't necessary for another to be disturbed or pre pre prevented from doing their work to answer, you know, that there might be, it might just be an excuse again uh, to divert oneself from the task at hand. So, you know, how many of us give an honest day's labor, let us put it that way, to our employers, you know, if, if we work for a particular company or do we drag our, our feet or distract ourselves or distract others from doing it? So it's, it's not only in the community where these kind of things, a religious community where these things can emerge, I think it's in our day-to-day -day life. And that's why I think I've always liked that idea of seeing one's work as one's obedience. Because you, you take up your daily labors in a different spirit. If you see yourself as doing these things for God, that this is the task that he's given you to do, no matter what that might be or how lowly it might be, and that you take it up with a kind of zeal and try to do it as well as possible, whether it's cleaning up the kitchen or cleaning up the house or whatever it might be, that you would do it well and not with, again, with that grumbling spirit. We live in a grumbling age. People complain about everything. Okay, so the more serious sins into which a monk can fall are the following. Contempt, prideful contradiction, leaving the monastery without the abbot's permission, meeting with women or other people outside the synobium, anger, quarreling, hostility, remembrance of wrongs, covetousness, which is leprosy of the soul, acquisition of anything, uh, whatever, apart from those things that the abbot gives, eating without blessing, and as a result of this, theft, and all of those sins related to the foregoing. All these are not, 
all these are not corrected with the simple punishment of the aptimia, act of penance, but with a greater and stricter punishment. And if the monk does not correct himself, he is then expelled from the monastery. A monk should, in his various duties, show humility and diligence of kind that would not be provided even to masters by their, their slaves. So, you know, we often don't see ourselves as capable of falling into certain attitudes or behaviors. And I think put in a place like a monastery, for example, where you have to uh, and willingly take up the responsibility of setting aside one's will and acting in obedience to the request of the abbot or another superior, there are going to arise things from deep within our hearts, a kind of willfulness that is really rooted in our, our sin and our desire to have our own way and to have our own things and to be and do what we want when we want and talk to the people that we desire to talk talk with, regardless of the impact that that might have upon us or others. And, uh, and so within this kind of almost laboratory of the monastery, one begins to see those movements of the heart very quickly. And uh, it's also why then they would give specific penances, encourage individuals not only to freely acknowledge their failure uh, and to do that publicly before the community, but to take upon themselves a penance that is given to them by a superior that they might directly and concretely address the thing that they struggle with. And sometimes within our mind, we will acknowledge something as sinful or, you know, being a reflection of this grumbling spirit or of anger or animosity. But it's one thing to acknowledge it in the mind. It's another thing to take a concrete action in order to correct it. And penances in our day have become so symbolic, you know, that they often don't address the particular sin that is being struggled with. And, uh, and this is where I think greater discernment is, is needed, that when we are struggling with something in particular, that we would be able to bring it to light within humility, with humility, but also then to take upon ourselves a specific penance precisely aimed at addressing the thing that we are struggling with. And, you know, again, this was built into the role of a monastery, but it's not necessarily built into our approach to the spiritual life or our approach to going to confession, or even our daily examination of conscience, that we would, if we see ourselves struggling with something in particular, that we would take upon ourselves a penance that would actually aid us then. Say if we were neglectful of our prayers, that we would take upon ourselves uh, a greater measure of prayer, or stay up later until we completed them, or uh, uh, if we were angry towards another, that we would then seek to take up a task uh, in order to help them uh, with something that they need, that we would be that concrete in our engagement in the spiritual life, to move it out of the mind alone. Angela. Yeah, 
Um, yes, I'm getting a sense um, uh, reading this that uh, this is sort of like a movement towards something much more perfect um, than what it is that uh, one is struggling with at the moment. But it seems to me that there are some things that one struggles with for one's whole life mm -hmm. and that they never go away. Um, I'm thinking of the thorn in the flesh of St. Paul and, um, you know, his, um, his, his receiving the message that um, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And also Mother Teresa, who lived her whole life without any sort of sensory um, consolations, it seems. And um, that's certainly my experience too, that um, you might be fully obedient and, um, you know, sort of fitting in with the obedience of the institution. But in fact, um, those struggles that you might share with the um, abbot or the elder continue regardless. I just would like to hear something about that from the fathers. Yeah, well, actually they do, I think within the next hypothesis, you know, that their discernment and uh, testing of the individuals coming to the community uh, would be of such a nature that they aren't discounting them because of particular struggles. That, uh, that you're right, that there are things that we struggle with in our life that maybe we're allowed to because it fosters humility or leads us to cling to God in prayer uh, or protects us from falling into other more grave sins of pride, for example. So we're allowed to experience uh, our own poverty in a certain area that leads us to God. Uh, I think when we look, though, at the broader, you know, with broad, at the broader strokes of the spiritual life and say, am I really entering into the spiritual battle, the formation of the mind and the heart and the formation of my character as a, dis a distinctive Christian character and ethic? Am I really entering into that in such a way that it's more than notional? that is in the mind, but is something real and concrete? Am I really striving, as Christ says, to enter by the narrow gate? And uh, so investing myself in such a way that I'm acknowledging the things that I struggle with, but actually then engaging the spiritual disciplines uh, that foster virtue and help us to overcome vice. And I think, uh, we can approach the, the spiritual life and the faith as a whole in a very intellectual way, where it is something that we are, think our, our way to, you know, that belief becomes tied to something creedal or theological and not uh, uh, really this experience, experiential knowledge of God, of Christ, that comes through striving for him and arises out of the desire that Cassian mentioned at the very beginning of that first section that we looked at, that desire, anything that we desire in this world, we, we invest ourselves in it completely and we don't count the cost. Uh, and yet I think often when we hold up 
the spiritual life in our striving for Christ and the life of, of holiness or to develop a, a, a strong prayer life. We often go about that in a haphazard way or we will very quickly, <clears throat> maybe too quickly label something as the thorn in the side when we haven't even struggled with it. You know, and I think there's such an honesty in the fathers that uh, they will they will push us that they don't varnish the truth about who we are in the many ways that we find to avoid looking at the truth about ourselves. And even the few paragraphs I think that we looked at here, you know, how we can drag our feet, how we can distract ourselves, how we can put ourselves, you know, forward uh, to avoid the things that God has really set before us to be attentive to or that have greater weight, whether it's being attentive to him or to those that he's given us to love or duty that has been asked of us, that we find a myriad of ways to avoid that. And I think often in our mind, you know, those, we, we see it, but we, we've, we've, we become so artful in avoiding the truth. And when, we understand humility as being truthful living, then we are always looking at those situations and circumstances to see, you know, is there a kind of willfulness in this or avoidance of what God is calling me to do or something else? Maybe it can be a fear or anxiety that leads us to do these, these things as well, uh, to distract ourselves from what God is putting before us or an opportunity to, to love. You know, how many of those do we miss in a, a given week where we are just so absorbed in what we are, are doing for ourselves or to feed into a kind of self-identity that we miss all of these opportunities to love and give ourselves and love to the people that are right before us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I might have mentioned here before, you know, sometimes, you know, going to the hospital is never a pleasant thing. Uh, there's just something about going to hospitals that can be hard. And I'm, I always admire hospital chaplains because they're, they're there all the time and they're attending to those who are very ill and their families and things like that. And, uh, you know, when you're a priest and, you get a, a call from, from somebody who's in the hospital, who's sick or dying or needs to be anointed, you know, to have this kind of freedom to say, yes, I need to drop everything that I'm doing and go attend to this soul. And it's a humbling thing when you see a rise in your heart, even if you go and do it. When you find a rise in your heart, that hesitancy, that part of yourself that would rather do something else or just finds that unappealing on some level, that there's an aversion 
a subtle aversion to it that can slow us down from acting in love, responding in love in, in the way that we, we would want. And, you know, I've had a couple of eye-opening experiences in, in that regard. And uh, that were really, you know, it was providential that uh, I, I got a call once from uh, the daughter of a cousin telling me that uh, that her mother uh, was 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 dying, and uh, and she was in a hospital here in Pittsburgh, and uh, there was just something I had this sense I should go because I, I didn't know how imminent things were, and. Uh, and in fact, the, they, were, they, they were Orthodox as well. And so I was Roman Catholic priest. So, you know, there was that ease in my mind to rationalize about it. Well, I wonder if their own priest has, has been there and uh, attended to them. Not that that even mattered, you know, just out of charity, you know, one would want to go. And uh, this, the thought came, go. And I went. And it was, I got there 15 minutes before she died and was able to pray. And the only one who was there was her husband, my cousin, who I was a ring bearer at their wedding. And there was something, it was one of the most beautiful moments in my life. Sad and, you know, bitter because she went early because of cancer. And the, the deep sorrow that he experienced as well. But to be a part of that was a privileged moment uh, as a priest, but also as a cousin and, you know, one that held this particular cousin dear, you know, and one, it was only, I think, God that sort of led me then to act at that moment, just go. And let, let all those questions in your mind, you know, does this need to be now? Or am I really the one to do this? And to allow that something deeper to take me where I needed to be. And uh, as I said, you know, there, there's something that I thank God for about that. But there was something also deeply humbling about it because I could also see the workings of these subtle workings of the human heart and how lazy, negligent, how we can be or how we can rationalize doing or not doing something. And it's this kind of willingness to, to look at the deeper recesses of our hearts and those subtle movements that the, the fathers, that we see in the fathers. And that's why I think a close reading of them is so important, that it wasn't this kind of slavish obedience, you know, of doing things just, you know, out of endurance, uh, because underneath, you know, one that might not form the heart. There has to be this greater desire for God and the embrace of that obedience in order that we might form our hearts to be like the heart of Christ that one takes up these tasks or they're not, they're not going to bear any fruit whatsoever. And, uh, and so I, I, I get what you're saying and I, I agree with it. 
you know, that there is the, these times where we have this thorn in the side, these things that are, are not going to be perfected in the way that we desire, but and where we have to trust in the providence of God that, you know, maybe there's something more important about the struggle itself than the perfection that we would want in our own mind. And this is where the next hypothesis will be important because it it's becomes essential too then for those who are put in the responsibility of guiding, of having that level of discernment, you know, of loving the individual who's in their care, of entering into the, the spiritual life so deeply themselves and struggling with these movements of the heart so fully that they're able to be competent and loving guides to those that are put and their charge. And so this particular hypothesis is strong. It's saying you, you owe it to this individual as well as to the community to scrutinize what's their desire and whether or not they should be there. Because if, um, one who enters a monastery who does not really want to be a monk is going to end up being miserable. And, uh, and is probably going to make the entire community miserable. Uh, but you also want what we're going to read next is someone that's going to give this kind of guidance that draws them along through their own weakness and through their poverty in order to strengthen that desire for God as well as the desire for, for virtue. Okay. Do you have a follow-up or any other? No, thank you very much, um, okay. Father David. That was a really good response for me. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So finally, the Constitutions from the Holy Apostles, one of the earliest writings uh, uh, that we have of the of the early Christian community. Those who come for the first time to the mystery of godliness be led by the deacons before the bishop or the presbyters. Let the bishop or the presbyters carefully examine the reason which impelled them to come to the word of the Lord. Let those who brought them in turn verify and give personal information about them. Let their conduct and life be examined in detail, and let it be determined whether they are slaves or freemen. If any of the candidates is a slave, let his master be asked whether he can give assurance as to his character. Otherwise, let him not be accepted until he has shown to the bishop, through his manner of life, that he is worthy. So, you know, one of the things that is needed for worthiness is not perfection. Uh, so much as it is desire, that it is this life and the gifts and the, that we receive from the Lord uh, and the gratitude that should flow from that, that this is a part of what's going on within the individual. So what we're given to reflect upon uh, as the last paragraph in this hypothesis is someone simply coming into the Christian community and who's going to be participating in the deepest mysteries of our life to receive the, the holy sacraments. That uh, here too, that there is a kind of scrutiny. Is, is it something that they truly desire or are they doing it for other motives, for other reasons? 
because if it's for something else, then it's not going to bear fruit in them. Or if they need further guidance or care to stir up that desire, then the, the bishop or whoever's in their charge is able to do that as well. You know, not everyone who comes to a Christian, or I'm sorry, not everyone who comes to a priest, you know, has the desire for a spiritual life. And more, more often than you might realize, people will say, you know, I really have, I don't know if I believe in the Eucharist, or there's a part of me that doesn't want to pray, or has my doubts about the love of God. And, you know, and uh, where there is a need to, where if there is a, a spark there to fan it in to flame and to, to do that with whatever delicacy is needed, uh, but with insight into what it is that might be an impediment or holding them back from receiving what Christ desires to give them. And so, as we go into the next hypothesis next time, you know, this is part of what we're looking at. You know, how are those in positions of authority to create a greater desire for individuals to give their lives over fully to Christ, to hold nothing back from him? You know, that it is, you know, love is given free reign within them. I'm, uh, I know I repeat this all the time, but I'm struck so often by the use of that word desire within the writings of the fathers. That absent that desire, then all of it is meaningless. And in fact, it becomes sort of the most pitiable kind of existence you know, to have no love or desire for Christ, and yet to embrace the uh, self-sacrifice of the monastic life. Why would one do that unless driven by love? And there are a lot of hidden reasons why one might do that. could be running from something, hiding from something, avoiding something, but not necessarily running toward Christ or desiring him. Okay, any final thoughts or comments? So I know this was a little bit of a laborious hypothesis because you know, looking at how they were scrutinizing young monks coming into a monastery might not seem to apply directly to our life. But I think ultimately the, the deeper message does, that we, we want to look into our hearts with as much honesty as we can and as they did to see, do I desire the Lord and his will on my life as much? Okay, so that brings us to 8.30. So why don't we stop there for, for the evening and close as always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you all.